Good evening and welcome back to Amanda here on CQT 90.3 FM. And I would like to remind you about our blog where we post the best of Amandla, which is cqt.ca slash Amandla. We've covered the egregious situation at North Mara Mine in Tanzania for over a decade here on Amandla. Why? Because it's a distillation of corporate impunity and brings in Canadian mining giant Barrett Gold in an intimate relationship with state violence in Tanzania in the name of profit. Yesterday, much came to light about the crimes in North Mara in a wave of reports in media around the world. Joining us tonight from Ottawa is Catherine Cummins, Research Coordinator at Mining Watch Canada. Catherine, welcome back to Amandla, and welcome back from your recent trip, trip to Tanzania. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy that we're getting the great exposure we're getting. It's amazing, and we will definitely talk about that tonight. Such a joy to see something like this covered, not just here on our wee little show, Amandla, but in a lot of really mainstream uh, media. So it is, it's an important moment. But um, let's, let's talk about uh, this coming out of an initiative called Forbidden Stories. Uh, what is that? Yeah, this is really interesting. About a month ago, we were contacted by a journalist actually in France, and he explained that they were putting together a consortium. So this was put together as a consortium of journalists from different countries right from the beginning. Um, and these are this is part of a series that they're doing. It's called Forbidden Stories, as you said, mm-hmm. and there is a website. If people Google Forbidden Stories, you'll you'll see sort of what the focus is. And the focus is really um, on on abuses happening around the world, um, somewhat focused on the environment, but also definitely on human rights mm-hmm. um, that are be are, that are not getting out. You know, that are just not hitting mainstream media. Um, or local media because of the threats to journalists um, who are trying to cover these stories. And so a good part of the reporting is on the threats that um, journalists in Tanzania have faced over many, many years now, different, um, different um, uh, you know, governments that have, that have been in place um, when they've tried to report on the abuses at, in North Mara. And so... Um, well, let's let's know. start with that. Let's start yeah. with the then. Let's just dive right into mm-hmm. what, what they found, and let's start with those journalists. What's been the experience of people who are trying to expose what's going on at the, in that mine and yeah, the, we, the surrounding community? This. Yeah, we, we've actually known this for a while because we we've been in touch with Tundalisu, who had, mm. um, when we first started Mining Watch in 1999, he was a, an, an environmental lawyer. With a um, with an NGO uh, that focused on um, environmental law in Tanzania, LEAT. Yeah, he was also a contributor here. We spoke to him several times here oh. here at Amandla, and he sat in my very kitchen while we talked about everything that was going on in um, uh, Bulianulu. Uh, no, in um, yes, yeah, yes Bulianulu, exactly. Yes, so yes, that's what the, the this issue goes he way back. To us. Oh yeah, my goodness! Well, yeah. that is amazing mm-hmm. that you've got that history. So yes, when we first started Mining Watch, he came to us and said, "Look, there's this terrible story. Mm-hmm. Another Barrick mine. So there's three mines owned by Barrick indirectly through." What was then African Barrick Gold and is now Acacia. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Bullion Hulu mine, huge human rights abuses, and he was very involved in that, and he was very threatened uh, around that story. Mm-hmm. He's always been involved in North Mara as well, and so um, you know he he is wasn't a journalist; he was a an, an, an lawyer, but he has since um, 
been elected as um, a member of parliament for the opposition party mm-hmm. and has continued speaking out about these abuses and was badly, badly shot up last year, something like 16 bullets. It's oh. amazing he survived. Um, he's not in Tanzania anymore because he remains threatened. But he has really tried hard to get this story out. And one of the things that, you know, he's done, obviously, is worked with journalists in Tanzania and, you know, brought the facts and the data to them and tried to bring them to mm. the story. And, and large numbers of journalists in Tanzania themselves have been threatened for trying to tell this story. We also know, like, before I went there for the first time in 2014, so I've been going yearly, and last, my last trip was in May, um, we were told to be very, very careful because... Um, there was a Canadian journalist that had been thrown out of the country, had been deported um, for trying to report on this issue. And we, we were told to be careful to make sure that we went in with business visas so that, you know, if we went in with tourist visas and then we were doing this, this human rights research, um, we could you know, rightfully, I guess, be accused of, of not having gotten the right visa. So we always went in with business visas and made sure that, you know, if anyone stopped us and asked us what we were doing, um, we could we could show that we were doing the work we're meant to be doing as as mining watch. Um, so we were aware right from the start that this was a story that people were having a hard time reporting on. And you know we ourselves, of course, have been reporting. After every field trip, we would document the abuses. We would you know put the abuses you know put that all in, into public reports. Um, this was in the beginning. Mining Watch was going in together with a UK-based organization, Raid UK. And we would put out these reports, but very little media was mm-hmm. picking this up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, we were always grateful to Amandla for, you know, for covering this, but very little mainstream media was picking this up. So this consortium was really important because they decided to break that, that silence and go in. And they went in numerous times over, over the course of a month, and they gathered as much data as they could. And they really took our work a step further because mm-hmm. they both went into more detail on the history of, uh, you know, the smothering of this story, but also into the, the supply chain of what happens to the gold. And that's something we've never really looked at. We've yeah. been focused on the local abuses. Yeah. yeah, it's very interesting. And we'll get to that. Uh, we'll get to that in a few minutes. Oh, my gosh, there's so much to talk about. I just I have to throw in an anecdote about Tundulisu when he was here in Canada all those years ago, trying to lay bare the crimes that had happened in Bulianulu with, you know, the, the, the claim that uh, dozens of artisanal miners had basically been bulldozed into the earth and into their early graves to clear the way for Barrack Mines, and he he came with Barrack Gold, and he came with affidavits, and was trying to mobilize. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I gather with you, and also yep. with us here at Amandla, yep. and Broadbent Center, and a whole bunch of us to try to bring this to light. And then, what did Barrack Gold do? In, in terms of repression here in Canada, did an access to information uh, claim and really shut down a lot of people, seized emails and seized, you know, personal correspondence in a way to snuff out that story. And I would have to say yeah. they were successful because it died right there. You're very right. And, You're very right. And we sent a delegate like Tundu again, you know, encouraged Mining Watch. And we were very new at the time, but to, to put together a, a high level delegation to go and visit the mine, and um, Joan Kuyak, who was then mm-hmm. on, at Mining Watch, was part of that delegation, and um, 
Yeah, they were stopped. They never even got to the mine. They yeah. were stopped on the road to the mine. So, yeah, yeah there's, there's, you know, not just the North Mara mine, but Bullion Hulu before. There's yeah. been just, it's been really difficult to get the truth out about what's going yes. on at these mines. And then, of course, them carrying out these slap suits that further muzzled any kind of uh, yep. attempt to bring this to light. But let's let's move it back to the latest news now, because now, you know, that's, that's the history, which is very mm-hmm. important to remember. But uh, here we are now, and uh, there's this consortium of journalists. So just very briefly, who are some of them? Let's just give our listeners an idea of what this media landscape is that is suddenly exposing all of this. Yeah, um, and I, there's still, I'm still finding new, new um, covers of the story in different, in different media outlets, but I know for sure that it's been covered by the Toronto Star in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been covered by The Guardian in the UK. It's been covered by a Swiss um, um, uh, a news outlet, but, well, a, a newspaper. Unfortunately, it's in German because it's, it's actually one of the most extensive stories. It's in, in the Tagesanzeiger. So if you yeah, have any, I, I took if a you look at it and I thought, I'm not getting anywhere with that. <laughs> yeah, so if you have any, any of your listeners there was no um, time to translate. can read German, please mm-hmm. go to the Tagesanzeiger because it's actually one of the most elaborate stories. And mm-hmm. I did talk to that journalist quite a bit as well as the one from The Guardian. Um, and it's in Le Monde, so that I think is, is maybe useful to some of your Absolutely. listeners. Absolutely. Um, because that's a French francophone yeah. um, version. So, um, and then I, I've seen it pop up in a Swedish, a Swedish newspaper, mm-hmm. so I think now it's just being covered. Yeah. But what I found really interesting was, um, some of the, um, mining journals are now picking it up. Wow. And so, yeah, and so you can find that mining journals are saying, oh, no, this is really terrible. You know, this mm. company's having so many problems already in Tanzania because they're also being accused of um, corruption and tax evasion by the Tanzanian government. And so, you know, one of the mining journals said, oh, you know, this is terrible. They called it a, a human rights brouhaha. Um, oh, boy, you know, how condescending and, is that? Yeah, and basically said this is the last thing the company needs. And I just think to myself, mm. my God, you know, this is not the last thing the company needs. Like, this is what the people, it's not the company that's suffering here. It's the people, you know, yes. and the focus is on, oh, dear, the poor company is in trouble now, you know. Well, let's, um, let's talk about the people because, yes, that's just absolutely incredible. So in, this, uh, in these reports, let's just remind our listeners of what the people of North Mara are, have had to contend with all this time with, with the North Mara mine. Yeah, and so... The reporting on the abuses is both environmental and human rights, and so I'm also very grateful to the journalists for for covering the environmental side Mm -hmm. because that's also something we have not been able to do, um, you know, other than sort of tangentially, we've really focused on the human rights. So I'll cover, you know, what we've been talking about first. And so... Yeah, there have been reports, you know, even even sort of anecdotally and not not sort of in in a great journalistic way, the way this is being done now. That that there have been um, serious abuses, assaults by the mine security forces, which are both private security that the company hires themselves, and then the police, which are Tanzanian police, which are part of the security of the mine through a memorandum of agreement that the mine has struck with the, with the Tanzanian police forces. Um, and so, you know, they have armed police who are supposed to be servants of the people mm-hmm. of Tanzania, actually working for a private investor, a foreign investor. Um, and they're armed and they shoot. 
And so there have been, you know, constant reports coming out of people being shot to death at the mine. And then when we went there in 2014 to try and start to, you know, do our own investigations on all of this, um, we were overwhelmed by the numbers. And we still have not covered, you know, even a fraction of all Mm -hmm. the people that have been shot and either killed, so we're talking to family members or we're talking to people who've lost limbs or eyes. Um, Some are shot by live ammunition, some are shot by what they call rubber bullets, but those can also be extremely damaging. Many, many people who've just been beaten to within an inch of their lives, um, the police and the private security often have what they call hoe handles, which are these really heavy wooden sticks, Mm -hmm. and they just beat people often around the head, and so we've seen lots of people with serious brain injuries, and then also um, they they beat their their limbs, but particularly at the joints, so like ankles and knees and and elbows, um, and people who are just maimed by by these beatings, Mm -hmm. um, if they survive them at all. And then, of course, we started interviewing women who'd been raped Mm -hmm. and gang-raped, by the mine security, and you sort of ask, okay, well, what's going on here? Is the mine security going into the villages? Well, that actually does happen as well. They will sometimes literally go after people in their homes, Mm -hmm. but more often what's happening is that people who live around the mine, and, you know, we've, we've talked about this before, so I won't go into too much detail, but, you know, they've become desperately poor as a result of this mine taking over so much of the land, but also these people used to be cattle herders and farmers, but also would have access to the gold, which is very near the surface. And so they were small-scale miners as well, and that allowed them to make a living, sort of eke out a living in a very dry area. Um, But the mine took over all that land, so even the cattle herding, the farming has become very difficult, and they've lost access to what used to be their gold. And so what they're doing is they're going into the waste dumps of the mine. Like most of the people who we've interviewed who've been harmed were harmed in the waste dumps of the mine. Yeah. So this is huge mountains of, of rock that contain still a little bit of residual gold that the mine has decided is not worth processing, but that the people can find. And they go in, and this is men, women, and children. Like yeah. I have pictures of whole families in the waste dumps. And most of these waste dumps are outside of the actual wall that the mine has put up. Um, but then, of course, there are also some, and that tends to be young men, who will try to go over the wall and into the areas, you know, the pit or the processing area where they can find, you know, entire rocks with, with, the, with the most gold in them. And, 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 and in all of these areas, whether it's the waste dumps or the actual pit area, these people become very vulnerable to attack by mm-hmm. the mine security. And they're so pejoratively referred to as scavengers, which is just such a dehumanizing term yeah. for people. It's such a desperate situation. And we've talked about this before, but I'm going to ask you the question again. Why is it a threat to Barrett Gold that uh, locals are going into what has been scrapped and deemed not commercially profitable to try to find those specks of gold. Why is there so much repression around these? what's been dumped by Barrett Gold? Yeah, that is such a good question, and it's so hard to understand. And, you know, like I, like I said, the women who were raped and gang raped, those were all people who were in the waste dumps, not in the pit. And and those crimes were crimes of opportunity because mm-hmm. the guards are there. They're guarding the pit and the the, the, you know, the processing areas within the mine. 
Um, but they see these people and, you know, the women in particular, those are literally crimes of opportunity. They go after them because they can, because they're mm-hmm. officially, once they're in the waste dumps, they are trespassing. Yeah. They're trespassers. Yeah. Um, so even but, the garbage you know, is Barrett Gold's property. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. And so they're trespassing. And so that, you know, lends the thinnest of authority. But, you know, clearly the, 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 the result of trespassing should not be rape or shootings, often in the back or, or these severe beatings. Um, if, they're, if they were going to act as police, they should be arresting these people. Um, and it's not just the police. It's also barracks private security. Mm-hmm. And what, one of the most shocking things in the interviews that keeps coming up over and over again, um, whether people are in the waste rock dumps or whether they've actually gone over the wall, very often they get access through bribing the police and the security to look the other way. Mm-hmm. So they have to pay them and then they agree to let them go ahead. Um, but often these stories take a turn when, you know, so I'll ask the interview, you know, as, as, as I'm interviewing, I'll say, well, wait a minute, you bribed them and they allowed you in, then why did they shoot you or why did they beat you up or, um, you know, or why did they use uh, gas canisters and, you know, or rubber bullets on you? And they would say, well, it changed when the white man came. Mm-hmm. And it's always the white, you know, I just think this is so amazing how they always say when the white man came. And I say, well, who's the white man? And they don't know, but they said there's two of them, and they're the head of security at the mm-hmm. mine. And when they show up, that's when the, the, uh, the guards, whether they're armed, you know, the, the police or the, or, the, or the private security, then start taking action against the people mm-hmm. who, who they've just let in, um, because clearly... You know, hearing the story over and over again, it's quite clear that that the head of security, who's a white person, is seen to want this action. I mean, why else do it, right? Like, if they they have been told you should not be abusing people's human rights, you should not be um, using excess use of force, you should not be assaulting people, then when the white man comes, they would make sure they don't do that. But in fact, when the white man comes is when they... Exactly. Well, you know, what's so amazing is that, you know, Mining Watch, you and Mining Watch have been so courageously reporting this for so long. But now what we're seeing, I mean, I read this in The Guardian today. Yeah, it's hit mainstream press yeah. coverage, which is yeah. a remarkable thing. So let's shift to you had brought it up early on in our conversation about one thing that was interesting that uh, some of these uh, reporters have done is looked at the supply chain and kind of where this gold is ending up. And uh, something that was a particular interest to me is Apple and Canon and Nokia kind of boasting that the gold components in their products are ethically sourced and Yet, what we saw yesterday in this rollout of reporting is that the, the you know their findings tell a very different story. Exactly, I, I was so thrilled um, when I was contacted by the journalist for, for the Tagesanzeiger in Switzerland, and he was involved specifically to look at the supply chain and see where is this gold going. And they found out that it's going through uh, a company that's <clears throat> based actually in the Netherlands and in India. and But then eventually that gold makes its way to Switzerland, mm-hmm. where it's processed in the refineries in Switzerland, and it sort of gets the stamp of approval mm-hmm. as being clean gold. And, of course, this is a very dicey system, and there isn't, you know, there's, there's, there's good information in the reporting that's been done, but I think more needs to be looked at in terms of this, because there, there's almost like a certification system in place so that, the big electronics firms and others that need to source gold for, for, for whatever you know, purposes they use it, 
can sort of tell their consumers, oh, you know, we, 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 we do due diligence. We make sure that the gold that we use is not from, mm-hmm. from well, just like with blood diamonds, it's not from blood, blood mines or blood gold mines. Um, but in fact, that it sounds like from the, from the reporting that's been done that these certification systems are basically all in-house. So yeah. they're, they're just the industry uh, policing itself, if you want to even call it policing. And, and you hear the people involved in these certification systems in these stories say things like, well, you know, it's really hard to know where it comes from, and we do our, do our best. And, and they had seen the reports that Mining Watch was putting out because they talk about the fact is, yes, we take these NGO reports very seriously. Mm-hmm. No one ever reached out to us. Yeah. None of these so-called certifiers or people who are supposed to monitor the due diligence mm-hmm. of the refineries ever reached out to us to say, hey, we've been seeing your reports. This is of concern to us. No. They talked to the company. They reached out to the company and said, hey, what about these reports? Yeah, and the so company like said, closed loop. don't worry about it, yeah. right? We've got this under control. All this is all in the past. Or, and they were saying, oh, we have this grievance mechanism, which we've also talked about, about how mm-hmm. that really is not working at all. And, and then the, the so-called certifiers just sort of go, oh, okay, well, we talked to the company and everything's fine. Yeah. So now, uh, now with forbidden stories, they have really broken this open. Like that's they they've just come out and said we we did the research, we've looked at the supply chain, and uh, your certification is, um, you know, <laughs> on very very thin ice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So you know, Barrett Gold has always kind of been a Goliath of impunity, as we discussed in Tanzania, in Papua New Guinea, in Canada, and elsewhere in the world. Do you think they're at all nervous now that 40 journalists are covering this around the world and uh, in, again, the mainstream press? Mm-hmm. Well, I was so disheartened. To There's only a few places where they actually, so they, they sent the story to to um, Barrack and Acacia before it was published. Um, and Mark Bristow, who's the new uh, CEO mm-hmm. at Barrack, um, he just went through his first annual general meeting this past uh, May, is, is responding. And he's both responding saying that um, they refute the reports mm-hmm. that Mining Watch has been putting out. So, you know, I don't know how he can just say we refute those reports when you know, they themselves are putting in place a grievance mechanism and processing mm-hmm. hundreds of these people who've been damaged um, or have lost loved ones. So that is kind of disconcerting. But they, he also um, made a comment about this being in the past and about them dealing with it. Mm-hmm. And it's not in the past. You know, this is ongoing. And so I'm, I'm really disconcerted to hear that they are just taking this deny, deny, deny attitude as opposed to... Um, speaking about why it is that they have this arrangement with the police and why it is that these uh, offenses continue and why it is that their grievance mechanism is so appalling that people are having to, again, seek ways to take legal action, which, uh, which, is, which is happening. You know, there's, there's an attempt to, to take this to court in the U.K. where, where the subsidiary Acacia is housed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's an attempt again at legal action, but this is the second round, right? Yeah. So there was legal action between 2013 and 2015, and a very small number of people did get um, 
uh, an out-of-court settlement, but the reason it wasn't a much larger number is because the company put in place its first so-called grievance mechanism and pulled people away from the lawsuit, literally went after the clients of the lawsuit and said, oh, just drop your lawsuit, sign this paper, drop your lawsuit, we'll give you some remedy and sign this legal waiver. So, you know, this remedy mechanism at the mine has been used very nefariously for a long time. And even though they've now stopped having people sign legal waivers, they're still signing a document that says the mine was not responsible yeah. for the harm they yeah. endured. Yeah, which brings, so uh, brings very, the whole thing to a screeching halt. Yeah, it's very problematic. Yeah. Okay, well, you, you just got back from there, so I just want to ask about what you saw on the ground. Have you seen any change? What, what were your kind of key observations while you were there? Well, while I was there, um, this time I was very focused on um, the the remedy mechanism because they they keep evolving it, and so there's some they're bringing in villagers now to be part of this final appeal. Um, so I was interviewing some of those, but at the same time, while I was on the ground, I was also being told of of very recent um, shootings again. You know, incidents of violence. Um, some of them I think are in the not all of the coverage is the same from country to country or from place to place, but I think in the Guardian yeah, coverage... Yeah, they mentioned it, yeah. They mentioned that, that there's been recent recent shootings. Um, you know, there was one incident, this is really a dramatic incident of a child that was run over by a vehicle um, outside of the, the mine, just on a public road, and this child was run over, and as villagers gathered around this child... Um, the the mine security showed up and started shooting people, you know, just mm-hmm. shooting them because they were trying to disperse them, as opposed to just trying to disperse them. They, they, there were a lot of people shot. So, you know, the, the, this this level of sort of impunity and and resorting to very violent means of dealing with human situations is not has not changed from what we can see at all. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's let's end with this, which is also a subject you and I have visited over the last little while that seems to be going absolutely nowhere, but maybe you will surprise us tonight, and mm. that is the uh, Canadian ombudsperson who is supposed to be uh, bringing Canadian mining corporations to some level of accountability. What, do we have an ombudsperson? Oh, my goodness. This is such a dramatic and terrible story. Like, I was actually hoping to be able to bring this issue to a Canadian ombudsperson, particularly for the victims who are what they call timed out, who have no chance of legal um, recourse because their statute of limitations in Tanzania is three years. And there's so many victims that will, will not be able to go to court. And so I was hoping that we could take this to the Canadian ombudsperson. The, uh, the office was announced a year ago, in January in 2018. With the announcement, there was a commitment from the government, an absolute commitment that was on the website even of the government, that this ombudsperson would have the powers to compel documents and witnesses, which is critical to the ombudsperson being able to do credible investigations and then be able to report out publicly on findings of fact. And that could then lead to a recommendation of remedy for people. They, the government has totally reneged on that promise. They finally appointed a person, so there is someone now who has been appointed. Um, it's, her name is Sherry Meyerhofer. She has no serious background in human rights. She was a corporate lawyer for the oil and gas industry in her early career, and she then moved into primarily development work. Um, 
she was appointed in, in, in April of this year, and with her appointment came the, um, what they call the Ordering Council Mandate, which is basically describes what her mandate is. And in that mandate, there was nothing about compelling documents and witnesses. Wow. It was super weak. It looked very similar to the mandate that something else that the Harper government had put in place instead of an ombudsperson called a CSR counselor. It, the two ordering council mandates look almost, sim- almost the same. And we have been fighting. We, Mining Watch, together with the Canadian Network on Corporate Accountability, have been fighting. And, you know, right up till today, we are still fighting the government to say, you have to, you have to live up to your commitment. You made a commitment that this office would be able to compel documents and witnesses. And the Mining Association of Canada, the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada, and the Council, uh, the the Chamber of Commerce, have already done an op-ed, a joint op-ed with a little victory dance saying, well, no, we're very, very happy with Mm -hmm. this appointment, and we're very, very happy with the... um, the ordering council mandate, and we think it should stay just the way it is. And we're, of course, they're happy with it. You know, the industry has kowtowed to their industry lobby. You know, the, yeah. the government has kowtowed to the industry lobby, which said, you know, make this mandate as weak as possible. And they made it as weak as possible. And so I gather you haven't gotten a call from her to get the lay of the land. We have met with her. Oh, you we have? have? We met with her. Yep, we met with her just before my, my last bout of travel. Um, and when we met with her, she told us that she has been clear with the government. In fact, she was about to go into a meeting um, with, with the, 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 the... But she was appointed as a civil servant. You know, this is part of the problem. She mm-hmm. has no independence. Yeah. She was appointed as a civil servant, and she is, her title in the Order and Council mandate is advisor to the minister. Mm-hmm. So she has no independence, and she was about to go into a meeting with um, people from, from Foreign Affairs, from Global Affairs Canada, to discuss the weaknesses in her OIC. We went over them together with her, and she acknowledged that these were weaknesses, and she said that she would really prefer to have those powers. Mm. But, you know, she needs to be fighting for that. And and she needs to fight for that because this is her reputation and her job that's on the line. And honestly, I don't think this is a job she should even want to have if she doesn't get those powers. And it's looking really bad right now, I have to say. Like, it's not looking like she's going to get those powers and if she doesn't, I don't know why she would want that job, because she will be a lame duck, and she will be miserable, and we're going to be very miserable. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a big disappointment, huge disappointment. Again, right? Again. Yeah. yeah. Well, Catherine, as usual, I feel like we could talk all night, and we've only <laughs> covered part of it, but we were going to have to say goodbye. But I, before I do that, I really want to congratulate you and Mining Watch, because you have played such a key role on keeping this issue alive and frankly I cannot imagine um, that you know this this whole media initiative forbidden stories really being able to take off without the kind of work that Mining Watch has done and I know here at Amandla we feel so indebted to you and I'm sure those journalists do and I uh, do as well and I really I want to thank you your work is so important well likewise and you know it's we're celebrating journalists today, but you know, we, you're part of that, right? Mm. You've been getting the story out um, when no one else was. So really, really appreciate the work that you do as well. Okay. Well, to be continued. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Bye-bye. Good night.